Well, hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. Yep, I'm Peter Switzer. And this week I catch up with the host of Sky News' Credlin. Yep, Peter Credlin, of course. This is one of the best interviews I think I've been involved in. And what Peter reveals about herself will surprise many. We also meet the economist Saul Eslake. He was the former chief economist at ANZ. And he now has come up with a pretty controversial report for the Tasmanian government. He wants to resurrect death taxes, extend payroll tax to more small businesses and introduce a land tax. But why? Saul explains all. And he also has a great website. Better call Saul. And finally, Tony Nash, the CEO of Booktopia, tells us why we have read more books since the coronavirus came to town and what are we reading. That's the show, so now get ready for a different take on Peter Credlin. So I'm talking to the Australian political commentator and host of the Credlin Show, Peter Credlin on Sky News, and the former Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Peter, thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. Great to be with you. Peter, let's take you back because everyone knows you from all the things you did in the media, but a lot of people wouldn't know where you came from and how mm. you got to where you got to. So can we start off with uh, the sort of simple question, uh, and I think I know the answer to the question. Um, <laughs> you, you, you're a country girl, aren't you? And my question around that is, were you a country girl that always aspired to be in politics? No, actually, I'm the antithesis of a, of a political animal. Strangely, I, you know, I have that label towards the end of my career, but certainly didn't start out that way. Um, I grew up in the Mallee, which is in country Victoria, over towards sort of the South Australian border, um, in a little town of 900 or so people. Um, my dad's family had been there since the 1850s, since Victoria was first settled. Um, English sort of Irish stock is often is the case with country families. Uh, there's five kids in my family. My my dad was from, um, you know, 1936 era. He finished school at the age of 12, not year 12, 12. Mm. Um, and mum did her leaving. And, and, you know, for all of the lack of formal education, my dad was incredibly interested in ideas, um, quite interested in politics, although I once asked him how he voted coming out of a polling booth and he was really quite aggressive about it. He said, you should never ask a man how he votes. It's an infringement on his liberty. And I think that goes back to, obviously, the, the split in Victoria inside the Labor Party mm. and we were Catholic and all of that history about politics and, and people being quite sectarian, I think, in those days. Um, but but loved ideas, loved to read. And so he was really determined that his kids would, would go as far as they could, you know. And, and as I said, from a dad who finished not much more than primary school, all five of us have got bachelor degrees and postgraduates. So it's, it's a lovely Australian story and I tell it because I'm incredibly proud of my dad to have pushed us so hard for education, but also that, that education can change a life within, within a generation. And you know, I wouldn't have had the, the, the big enough scope to have wanted to study law or go to Melbourne Uni as I did if I hadn't had been supported so well at home. And I'm from the age where there was no internet, obviously no mobile phones, pretty crappy TV reception. So so reading and storytelling, even reading books aloud at night around the fire with family, mm. that was actually quite a common thing. So all of that ended up to me being in Geelong at a school, girls' school with Mercy Nuns. And, you know, I've done state school. I've done co-ed school. I've studied, went to school in the United States and I've obviously gone to this girls' school in Geelong. And the one takeout I have in all of that is, in a girls' school, I had this emancipation in that it was okay to be smart. You know, you're allowed to put your hand up, you're allowed to have mm. the right answer. And that had really been one of the things that I'd been second-guessing, particularly in my sort of mid-teenage years. And that was a real game-changer for me. So, you know, I do understand later on in life uh, the reticence of uh, – really qualified women to put their hand up for jobs, you know, to pitch in at this level when I say to them, no, actually, you should be going for the, for the chief of staff job. My mm. goodness, look at your qualifications. Or women not being really comfortable putting up their hand in a room full of men when there's only a few of them. So I understand that because I, I remember it so, so potently when I was growing up. 
But did you? It's interesting as I listen to you because my my wife went to uh, Bridgerdine at Ranwick, and uh, she always says that the nuns there were very um, encouraging of them to um, you know believe in what they believed in. To you know, mm-hmm. they're, as, they're as good as any man, and all that sort of. In fact, they yeah. sound like there are there are a bunch of wonderful feminists uh, at Bridges Dean Randwick and it seems as though you had the same kind of... Um, mercy nuns. Yeah. Yeah, mercy nuns. Show no mercy, those mercy nuns. <laughs> correct. Glad- gladiators for women, they really were. And um, and I, I don't think, it, you know, your family's obviously very influential, but your teachers become uh, incredibly influential as you get older at school, I think. And, um, you know, one of my politics teachers, for example, uh, had taught in the United States at university level and was teaching my my school kids, uh, my class, U.S. politics. Right, and he was an American, mm. and he'd he'd been in the sort of the peace marches, and he'd been conscripted to Vietnam. Fascinating stuff for a kid like me to have that first-hand primary, you know, lived experience. And, and others of my my politics teacher also now is running the school that I went to. So, you know. I just was blessed, I think, all the way through life that I had some pretty extraordinary role models, not just women too. I mean, some pretty extraordinary role models in men and I think it makes a huge difference. I mean, it's I know modern language or business parlance is mentoring. Um, it's the same as, I guess, what I had, but not probably as structured as it is now and more of finding an affinity with a human being and that human being believing in you and, and you wanting to learn from them, it, it, it's, you know, extraordinary. Peter, can you tell us what it was like progressing from school to university and then the employment scene? Because if given the encouraging environment you were brought up in school and university mm. would not have been all that threatening given your age. I think that the girls who attend to, say, Melbourne Uni in the 50s might have seen a lot more sexism than you might have seen, but I, I could be wrong. But what was it like in the workplace? You know, being a strong woman, a lot of men would have found you threatening, I would have presumed, or weren't you as strong when you first started and you grew strong in the job? That's a really interesting question. I went to Melbourne Uni and lived on, the, on a college campus where I don't even think in my time it was still 50-50 women. It was on its way. It was originally a men's college and they started to take women in. And I started the university in 1990, the height of Keating recession, to be honest. And, mm. and Victoria had state bank collapse and a whole lot of other calamities. And uh, the, the then Labor government, Kane Kerner government, was not long to be booted out of power. So things were pretty economically bleak. And I'm a small business family. Uh, when we moved down to Geelong, mum and dad had a small business. And, you know, those sort of 18, 19% interest rates were yep. really hitting hard. So, so when I went to university, um, Every single dollar, even if I wanted a coffee, I, I had it myself. I remember I used to do my own tax in those days and I had one year six different group certificates because I was just getting any part-time job I could. Um, I didn't have a natural leaning towards politics. I mean, I studied politics. I did law and arts and I did history and English literature and politics, the arts component. But I didn't sign up to the, to the Liberal Party or, you know, it wasn't, a joiner in that respect. Um, I rode for Melbourne Uni. Um, I was caught up in my sort of the college campus life as opposed to the university campus life. And I loved and I loved law, but again, pre pre internet, um, if you wanted a case or you wanted a book, you had to be in the library. So mm. you had a lot more personal contact with um, your fellow peers, I suppose, than kids do now, university students do now. Um, I think. Naturally, because I'm tall and I'm over six foot, I've always, uh, you know, had some level of presence in a room. Mm. I'm not, you know, a woman who's felt hard to get noticed. And, you know, mm. fortunately, unfortunately, when you're tall, you sort of get noticed. Um, the best advice my dad gave me was always to listen and observe the room before you flap your jaws, as he used <laughs> to say. Um, and so I think that's something. Uh, I, I kept with me all the way through politics. I was never too proud to admit to myself or even to say out loud to others, you know, to ask a dumb question, never too proud to ask a dumb question. I didn't have a chip on my shoulder about, you know, whether that would make me look silly or not. I was never too proud to admit what I didn't know. 
So I didn't study economics at university, but I realised very quickly in Canberra, uh, it was the language of politics. Mm. And there was a gravitation of female uh, ministerial staff to the social policy area. You're pigeonholed, I think, as a woman in those sorts of portfolios. So I assiduously avoided them. You know, I chose portfolio areas, you know, foreign affairs, immigration, communications, defence, um, national security, where there weren't that many women, um, where I would use sort of the lawyer's underpinning and legal training to understand the legislation and procedure and the detail of the bill. But I also found people who were better than me at procedure and I would go and see them. There was a particular clerk who was a brilliant clerk, deputy clerk in the Senate, who's passed away, but she was a nursing girl as well. And I'd go and see her in the afternoons on a Friday when things were quieter and pick her brains, you know, basically get her to teach me everything she knew. And I had a couple of other people who were brilliant in economics, not great on the politics, but brilliant on the economics and, and budget work, budget detail. And again, I'd find time to go and see them and, uh, you know, buy them a couple of bottles of wine or whatever and, and pick their brains and learn everything that they knew so that I would be sort of, you know, like you know, dancers that can that sing, act and, and dance are like a, a the triple threat. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be, you know, a, a really strong advisor with a whole suite of skills and not just be able to be sort of shoved in one position and, and left there. So, so at this stage you were a part of the advisory team for the Liberal Party or, or what? So I started working in federal. So when I came out of university, to be honest, my father died suddenly and I was uh, had intended to take a gap year and go to Britain with a friend. And I was all at sea, Peter, and I mm. took a year off and there was a job in the ostensibly just to be around and help mum. And I've got younger siblings. And there was a job in the paper as a speechwriter to a Victorian, the Bush senator. And her name's Kay Patterson. And she took a punt on me. And uh, she, because I could write, obviously, and I'd mooted a lot at university, debated. And uh, that's a school that works for speechwriting. So I started with her and I just loved it. Now, that, that very first day, and I never lost this thrill, even right to the very end, that very first day coming out from the airport, approaching Parliament House, coming up the hill, I couldn't believe how lucky I was to mm. work at sort of the, the epicenter of our democracy, having studied law and the constitution, all of those things. And and after a couple of years with Kay, I worked for Richard Alston. And, and in the whole 10 years I worked in the Howard government, I'd only ever worked in the Senate. And that was very deliberate because more collegiate, um, it suited my, my policy wonk uh, sort of bent. You know, mm-hmm. I was always trying to get into the weeds of the legislation, listen to the pressure groups that, and, and all the interested parties that this had to change or this was badly drafted or we wanted an amendment here. And I loved all of that stuff. And uh, I then worked for the Senate leader, Robert Hill, when he was Defence Minister and I was his um, you know, most senior Senate staffer. So ran the legislation and you know, sort of all the macro organisation for the Senate as well as all the international defence policy. And, you know, I had a ball and I, I ended up there at, in uh, the chief of staff role with Helen Coonan in the last two years before the end of the Howard government. Big issues there with media reform and the T3 sale of Telstra and, you know, by then the advent of the internet and all the things it was going to do in terms of the digital economy. So a, a breadth of experiences that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, and it was only when I went to in the opposition years to the lower house and worked for the then opposition leader, Brendan Nelson, to start off with and Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott that, that um, you know, people saw me as a political figure mm. and indeed I think anyone even knew my name. I mean, anyone knew who I was for the first 10 years because that's the nature of most staff. But I think it all exploded um, when I, a female, was the chief of staff to what everyone had considered a really blokey man in Tony Abbott. But, mm. you know, I have to say, all the way through his 25-year career, every single one of his chiefs of staff were women, and that's very unusual. Yeah, well, there is the old um, Groucho Marx saying, uh, Peter, that um, one in a thousand men are leaders of uh, men and all the other follow women. So, <laughs> so, so, so I think you know 
Tony's just the 999 who follow women, and I don't blame him, quite frankly. Let, let's let's talk about that that transitional period. Because it seems to me because I I asked that original question: Did you did you kind of bump into to men who didn't like your you progressing? And it seemed to me I might be wrong. The Senate, you didn't seem to have any of that. Did you get any sort of blokesy pushback when you were? You know, making your way through the lower house and 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 dealing with you know ultimately with Tony Abbott. Not particularly until I was the chief of staff. Mm. Um, I think there is a level of tolerance, acceptance, encouragement for women when they're not the ultimate decision maker. I think when I was the deputy chief of staff, when I was the senior advisor, when I was one of others around the table. Um, I think there was it was quite welcoming. I think where I saw the shift, to be honest, is when you are the one making the call, when you're the final decision maker point in terms of the office administration, when you're the person that has to ring someone and tell them no. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's really easy to be the advisor to say, yeah, really good idea. I'll bowl it up to the boss, or I'll put a note on his desk, or we'll throw that into the meeting tomorrow. When you're the one charged with coming out of the meeting and, and told, you know, ring blogs or tell such and such no or they can't have what they want or that's not going to work or whatever. I think that's where I felt um, a real change in the tone. Now, I don't think that's necessarily misogynistic or sexist. Um, sure, certainly it's the sun, but it's also, you know, some people don't like the the point at which they get told there's a brick wall, mm. right? It doesn't matter who tells them that, regardless of the gender. Mm. But I, but I think the treatment for me, more so outside of politics, but the treatment in the media, I mean, I don't think most people right now would even know the name of Scott Morrison's Chief of Staff. And I don't think many people knew the name of the Chief of Staff before me other than perhaps um, uh, John Howard's Chief of Staff who'd been there for a long time. But but suddenly, because of the, the, the tone and temper of politics at that time, Peter, mm. in and around that hung parliament and you know, everything mattered. I think those sorts of things got so amplified. Do you think in many ways that a, a lot of people who are in your position before with other leaders, um, they, they can't be shrinking violets, they, they can't keep the job, but because you were a female who wasn't a shrinking violet, that then targeted you as being something unique and therefore effectively newsworthy? Possibly, possibly. I also think that the, 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 the rubric set up by Julia Gillard, that Tony somehow had an issue with women, I was uh, counterintuitive to that, um, as was a really strong independent wife in Margie, um, three daughters, three sisters. Um, he hates gay people, but his sister's gay and they're incredibly close. I mean, um, I, didn't, I was a living example every time you saw me in the chamber uh, working with the boss, that the narrative didn't sort of fit, you know, it didn't ring true. Mm. And so um, one minute I was supposed to be the puppeteer and the next minute I was supposed to be this woman who was being bullied by um, the then leader of the opposition and later the Prime Minister. I, just, I think I think it's shown to be very hollow and, um, you know, I also, you know, look with distance to see, you know, this calamity in Victoria where you've got senior officials fronting an inquiry about hotel quarantine and I don't know and I don't know and I can't remember and I can't recall. And what my only cry was being female and six foot tall and, you know, hard to get out of the photo, you know, caught in the background and somehow, you know, there was never anything that went wrong in terms of entitlements and all the pressured parts of my role uh, on my watch when I worked for him. So, um, and, I, and I take a lot of pride in that because, you know, if you're a bloke, you're across the detail. If you're a woman, you're a micromanager. That's the sort of stuff that gets thrown around. Mm. I'm pretty resilient. You know, I'm pretty resilient. Mm. And out of it all, um, I decided to turn the tables. And when I was offered a chance to, you know, in 2016, after Abbott left office, to, to commentate on that election, Malcolm Turnbull versus Bill Shorten. Um, I wasn't planning on a media career, just like I always thought I'd be a lawyer. I never planned on a political career either. But I got offered the opportunity and timing's everything. And I thought, well, I'll do the election 
I'll see how that goes and you never know what might happen. Did you think when you were advising um, Tony Abbott and you were right in the thick of things and you've alluded to the the, the variety of views that people held um, about mm-hmm. you, did you often think that uh, some really well-known people in the media really were too tribal, too, un, uh, too uh, biased, um, not objective enough given their positions in the media as major commentators? I've no issue with commentators having opinion because that's by their very nature their job. I think it's reporters and um, the slant of particular news outlets where they're pretending to be pure uh, and operating without bias and um, you know delivering the news, reporting the news as opposed to uh, applying an editorial lens. I think that that's different, and I think that's where you know quite rightly it should be called out. Um, I never thought a lot of it was particularly fair, but if, you know, you want to cry in your beer every time someone in politics pokes you in the ribs, you know, you'll have tears all the time. It's a pretty brutal world. And, um, you know, I didn't think that, I refused to let someone bully me out of the job, you know, to keep throwing pot shots, you know, tear me down in order to tear Rabbit down, which was, which was part of all that internal came with the, with the Turnbull crowd. I mean, What's the point of that? Who wins in that? You know, I'd been there and done the six years of opposition and contributed to what was the most successful period of opposition that Liberal Party's ever had and went into government, you know, writing policy, working on the agenda to deliver. I wasn't going to get some bloke with sharp elbows push me out of the way and, you know, I'd be dishonouring someone like my dad or my mercy nuns if I'd, if I'd done that. So you you just got to draw some level of strength from your own past history and to put that to one side and, and just, you know, shut out the noise and get on with it. And, you know, there are far more worse things that can happen to you in life than to have some two-bit n- nobody sort of journalist uh, knock out a couple of paragraphs that makes your blood boil at nine o'clock but pretty much forgotten by ten past nine. Mm. So you've got to get over it. Well, I say that myself. I've just got to get over it. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, Peter... Are you a commentator are you, or are you an objective uh, deliverer of news? Well, I'm a commentator. I mean, my politics is known. Um, it doesn't mean I don't call it out on the conservative side or centre-right side of politics, yep. as you know. Um, I come to it with a view, I hope, what do I think uh, is in the best interest of Australia? Now, because I'm on, on the centre-right, for me, that's inherently lower taxes, not higher taxes. Uh, that's smaller government, not bigger government. But just because the Libs will put a policy out there on budget night, um, if I don't think it fits my sort of sentiment of you know what's in the national interest, it won't get support from me, and I will, you know, speak about it quite openly um, and probably very critically. You know, there are things where the energy policy, I would be on a different page from where. Um, the government is and for many in the party room. So it's not, it, it's my my own personal philosophy um, that sets the tone from where I, you know, deliver my view of the news of the day. But it's not a political partisan view um, in the sense that not always does, you know, the coalition side of politics sit with where I think the national interest is. Is that does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not a journalist either, you know. I'm not. I'm a lawyer who's had years and years of working in the back room of politics. And um, so it's a perspective. Uh, it's one of many. Um, but it's no less commentating, I have to say, than what you might uh, listen in the morning uh, on the ABC radio, let's, let's say, for example. But because I declare my politics and the ABC doesn't, uh, it's no less biased or no less opinionated, you know, no less commentary. Mm. I can remember seeing you not long after um, Tony had lost the job and you were in the airport in Canberra and I said something to you along the lines, you know, it must, it must be, you know, devastating. And you kind of bravely said, well, yeah, or something like that. But you go, see, see you're affected by it, and why wouldn't you be? You, you did a lot to get Tony Abbott into power, then you'd lost the the, the position. Um, 
when you think about back on that time when clearly what he was, you know, he had a target on him, um, both mm-hmm. from Labor and from in, within his own party. Were there, were there some decisions where you said, no, Tony, don't do this, like the, the Prince Philip one? You, you must have had a view on that one. And did he, did he tell you that you know, it was a captain's decision or something like that? Uh, one of the privileges of uh, being in chief of staff is um, you, you were literally in the room when big decisions like to commit troops to the um, Islamic State battle happened and you are there when you were trying to stop the boats or um, as we were at one stage trying to get Australian bodies off a train in Ukraine out of MH17, right? So you've got these moments in time um, that you were there that that are incredibly privileged. Mm. And with that, in my view, others will disagree and they um, quite openly spill their guts when they leave. Um, with that, for me, um, comes a constraint on what all the bad decisions are mine, every good decision is his. There you go. That's the summary form. <laughs> okay, I get it. I get it. Um, one last question, but I'll probably find a second last question, Peter. Mm. When I started writing in newspapers in 85, um, you know, obviously Keating and Hawke were in, in power and I saw them change from the, the guys who won in 83 to these people as leaders and and maybe because I have a Catholic background like you, I, was, I once wrote a story saying that the changes you see in, in Hawke and Keating remind me of that, that Bible story when Jesus took the apostles on top of the mountain and they, I can't remember the term now, it was, it's something, something like um, where they, they see things like they've never seen before because they're at the top of the mountain. And as a consequence, they have to, they have to change. If, whatever they thought maybe as Labor leaders going in, because they're now leaders of the country, they actually they see stuff, they know stuff like never before. Mm-hmm. Is that the way it is? Because you must have seen stuff. Like you described the, 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 the train uh, with Australian bodies. On it. There must be stuff that you've seen, and we've probably seen excerpts of it on West Wing and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and programs like that. What was there stuff that you get you get to see that the normal Australian A doesn't see and B you don't kind of tell them because it'd be too hard for them to understand in the first place. You're absolutely right. Um, not that you don't tell them because you don't think that they they could uh, you know follow it or that they would want to know it or um, sometimes it's got obviously serious security implications. Um, Sometimes it, you know, by virtue of being in the PM's office, you've had accumulation of knowledge and years, you know, as I said, defence minister, et cetera, et cetera, to get to that point where um, there's a lot that sits behind what you're immediately briefed on. But I think it's that it's uh, one thing stayed with me, and it was said to be very early on when I was at university in politics, but all the way through it stayed with me. We are one of only, I think it's nine democracies in the world that are over 100 years. Um, now, that is a tiny period of time, 100 years in the life of a nation. But here we are, one of only a handful of democracies that are that long-lived. It tells you how fragile democracy is. And one of the things you find when you're sitting in a room with people um, who are making all the very big decisions that play out in people's lives then for years later is, in the end, it's still coming down to a narrow group of human beings, which was how things were decided 50, 100, 400 years ago, just a narrow clutch mm. of human beings. And in our democracy and in most Western democracies, in the end, there is one desk where most of the decisions will rest. And, and, and yes, a PM is like the sort of uh, the, the conductor of the orchestra and every minister has an instrument and you're sort of all sort of playing in a symphony together. But but ultimately, um, ultimately, there's a lot of, you know, uh, pressure and power and um, responsibility on the desk of, of one individual in this country. And, you know, the world's gotten so much faster. Our corporations are so much bigger. 
the information being pushed at all of us is so much denser than ever before and from so many different channels. But we still expect um, a cabinet of 30, and it's been 30 for some time, can't be more than 30 in a parliament, which will gradually increase as the population increases. But ultimately, one person making all of these decisions, and there's an enormous strain, if I can say that, that comes on an election night when that rests with you, when you when you fully understand what changes the next day. And, you know, Tony Blair's autobiography is is one of the best political books I've read, Peter, because it takes that that feeling that I then felt later on on election night, and I read Blair's book after um, Tony won in 2013, but but he encapsulates it so beautifully. So there there is a thrill of the opportunity that government gives you, but then there's this enormous sense of responsibility that comes with it. And I certainly felt that way, and particularly after, you know, that, that very sorry decade of changing prime ministers and everything that went with that. Now, unfortunately, for, for Tony Abbott, that ended at Malcolm Turnbull. You know, Scott Morrison was the one who saw off Malcolm and then, please God, Australia will never return to uh, that sort of circumstance. But, you know, it was it was an extraordinary moment in history, all of those those years, the hung parliament and, and what went on mm. on both sides of politics in terms of leadership. It was transfiguration was the word I was searching for. Your mercy nuns will be just as disappointed as my Christian brothers. <laughs> I had to look up Google to remember transfiguration. <laughs> but my last question to you is this. I've been watching a fantastic program on Foxtel um, called Mrs. America with Kate Blanchett. Have you seen mm-hmm. that program? I've seen snippets of it. I, I won't say I've probably watched a couple of episodes in and out, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm just interested because, you know, you are a woman of the right uh, and, and Phyllis Shatterley, I think her name was. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting that Kate Blanchett would play her character. Uh, you know, she was leaning against, as a, a, a conservative, um, you know, middle America uh, uh, wife, she was leaning against feminism. Now, but you sound very much a feminist, but you were a woman of the right. How have you reconciled political views on one side and your own independence and apparent feminism? Well, you're assuming I'm not a feminist. I'm assuming you are. But I'm saying... But yeah, yeah but, but, but feminism isn't owned by the left. And well, this, is, this is a big mistake people will make. Hmm. I deliberately have never shied away from declaring that I am a feminist because I don't believe that word should be owned by the left. And I don't believe it is as loaded as the left has allowed it to become. Um, you know, I studied feminist legal theory and a whole bunch of feminist subjects at university because I wanted to have the, the arguments and the debates with the left on a whole range of policy areas. But I lacked the, the understanding, the history, the language, you know, to, to be a viable opponent. So, you, you know, you've got to understand your enemy, you've got to understand the detail. And and I was and still am comfortable arguing that that feminism should be about equality. What I don't like now is this complete upheaval of feminism, and you can see these fights on the left uh, between you know old school feminists, if I can call them that, um, Sheila Jeffries, for example, very strident, almost lesbian separatist feminist um, who has a world reputation, who's now been set upon. Uh, in the left because she feels that some of the radical gender theories have displaced the equality that women have been fighting for for so long. So um, I think this is a debate that every woman should feel entitled and allowed to have and have a place of her own in the debate without it becoming necessarily partisan. And that, you know, you're pushed out because you, you vote one way or, or, or the other. It, you know, every woman has an entitlement to be a part of the debate for equality. And um, I'm not going to let the left push me away. Good on you. Peter Credlin, thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. Great to be with you. Well, it's time for me to do a little ad for the Switzer organisation. And this week, I'd like to talk about the fact that, yep, we have a financial advice firm, a financial planning firm. We've had it for something like 15 years. Uh, And I'm doing this ad because someone said to me the other day, gee, I didn't know you guys did financial planning. Yes, we do. So if you're interested, just go to switzeradvisory.com.au.
I'm catching up with my old mate, economist Saul Eslake. People would remember Saul when he was a chief economist at the ANZ for a long, long time, but he must have started when he was young. But now he's an independent economist and uh, occasionally comes up with some very controversial points of view. And the latest one starred a death tax or a death duty of 9%. Well, that's the way it was portrayed. I'm sure he'll correct me. So, that's like, thanks for joining us on the Peter Switzer Show. It's really nice to be back with you, Peter, after a long time. Yeah, for sure. So, let's, so let's talk about yeah, the core of the report that came out. The thing that really got everyone's attention was the idea that you thought a 9% estate tax or death duty would be a good idea. Explain why. Well, Peter, let me say first of all that this was one of three proposals that was in a 20,000 word report about options for reform of Tasmania's state taxation system. And the reason, apart from the fact that I live in Tasmania and care about it, Mm. that state tax reform might be more important than it is for other states is because Tasmania is more dependent on revenue from the GST than any other part of the country except the Northern Territory. Mm. And we know that revenue from the GST, having fallen short of expectations for some time, is really getting smashed up in the current recession because of what's happening to household spending. And so the reduction in GST revenue, both during the current recession, and I would bet for some time afterwards, because I've never been one that says we're going to have a V-shaped recovery out of this particular hole, Mm. is going to hurt Tasmania's Mm. finances more than anywhere else in the country, except again, the Northern Territory. And so we owe it to ourselves here in Tasmania to think about what else we could do to cope with that, Mm. rather than just making swinging cuts in spending on the sort of things that state governments provide, like schools and hospitals. So just very quickly, before I get to the death duty issue, the other two proposals I'd put were replacing stamp duty on the transfer of land with a broadly based land tax, which is exactly what David Thode and his committee have proposed to Dominic Perrottet, the treasurer of New South Wales. Mm. And he seems to be embracing the idea, although as he fairly says, he can't do it on his own without adversely affecting New South Wales' share of the GST. Mm. The second proposal I put, which in some ways will be more controversial than the third one, is that instead of having the second highest rate of payroll tax in Australia, levied on the smallest proportion of businesses in Australia, apart from the ACT, which is what we have in Tasmania at Mm. the moment, we should actually have the second lowest rate of payroll tax with all businesses having more than five employees rather than 36 employees as in the moment paying that payroll tax. But instead of preferencing small businesses just because they're small and for no other reason, instead giving preferences to new businesses, Because as I show in the report, for all that people carry on about small business being the engine room of the economy, and you and I both run small businesses, Mm. but for all that people say about that, in Tasmania, at least small business in aggregate hasn't created a single job over the last 12 years. All of the jobs that have been created in Tasmania's private sector over the last 12 years have been in companies that have had to pay payroll tax. Whereas in my view, if you look at the dynamics of business, It's new businesses, not small ones, that create jobs, that do innovation, that are in sectors that are likely to be more sustainable. And moreover, since you can't stop yourself as a new business from eventually becoming an old one, then you don't have the perverse incentives that all incentives for small business have that businesses stop growing at just below the point at which they cease to be small for the purpose of determining whether they get a tax break. Now, That's a controversial proposition, especially Mm. for a liberal state government that thinks that small business is the engine room of the economy, even though there's absolutely no evidence for it. And I think so to come to just insert something. Yeah. So all three are controversial. Yeah, of course. And for a guy who really is not by nature controversial, I would have thought, you are very controversial. 
well, I like to make people think. Mm. Now, I don't put up what I think are silly ideas just to attract attention to myself. Um, you know, it's I've never done that, but nor have I ever felt that I'm required to advance or defend someone's vested interests. I want to make people think. Mm. And this is what I'm trying to do here, just to make Tasmanian politicians think, which you know may be a harder task than it is in some other parts of the country, but um, certainly that's part of what I want to do. So uh, that takes us to that third one. Mm. I actually said in the report, Peter, that I would bet people who haven't read the report or who've just read a superficial press report of the report would use the term death tax to inveigle against the idea. And, you know, the challenge is there for me to explain to people what I'm actually proposing, and thank you for the opportunity to do that. What I'm actually proposing is not a 9% death tax. What I'm proposing is an estate duty that in theory would only apply to the 9% of Tasmanian estates that are worth more than a million dollars. And yes, of course, a million dollars isn't a lot in Sydney or Melbourne, where the average price house is over a million in Sydney these days. But the average price house in Tasmania, notwithstanding the increases that have occurred over the last three years, is about $380,000, about $500,000 in Hobart, but Hobart's only a third of Tasmania. It's about $330,000 outside of Hobart. So over the last three years, the Supreme Court told me that the uh, only 9% of Tasmanian estates have been worth more than a million dollars. And I'm saying anything less than that, not interested. Mm. Not interested in estates that pass to a surviving spouse or partner. So we're not talking about forcing grieving widows to sell up their house in order to pay tax. Nor am I talking about rates of tax that used to apply under the old death duties, that because state and federal governments were too lazy to index the thresholds for inflation, were a tax that, you know, when these things were first introduced in the colonial era, in New South Wales, death duties were introduced in the 1850s. Here in Tasmania, the first death duty was introduced in 1861. They were only ever intended to catch the estates of rich people. But because in the early 50s, when we had 20% inflation under Menzies, and then from the late 60s to the late 70s, when we had inflation averaging close to 10% a year for a decade, people whose estates were quite modest got dragged into a tax that was rather only designed to tax rich people. So I'm saying, yeah, you start with estates that are only those of the richest 9% of Tasmanians, you index the thresholds, The rates I'm suggesting are 5% on that part of an estate that's valued between 1 and 5 million, 10% on the part that's valued between 5 and 10, and 20% on the part that's valued over 10, remembering that there were only 29 estates in Tasmania in the last three years that were valued at over 10 million. But then, and this is the real important point, what I say is here's a way to avoid it by giving in the form of bequests or donations, the amount that you would otherwise have to pay in tax to Tasmanian registered charities. And I emphasize Tasmanian registered charities because I don't want to be providing incentive for Tasmanians to donate money to the dog's home in Perth, for example. But if you take an estate worth $2 million, right, which would be a big estate in Tasmania, not in Sydney, but in Tasmania, a big estate of $2 million. So someone might be liable to pay tax at 5% on the bid over a million, that's $50,000. I'm saying a dollar for dollar credit for every donation or bequest made out of that state to a Tasmanian registered charity, all you have to do is give $50,000 to a Tasmanian registered charity and you don't pay it. And What I'm saying is, therefore, that if you're so mean or your children are so greedy that they won't let you donate $50,000 out of a $2 million estate so that they don't get $2 million, they get $1.950 million, then by all means go and live in Queensland and let Queensland taxpayers pick up the cost of your health care and your palliative care in the last couple of years of your life, and we probably won't miss you. So what this actually is, is not a death tax. It is actually an incentive to make rich Tasmanians, of whom we don't have very many here, rich Tasmanians be a bit more generous to their fellow citizens than they currently are. Okay. But 
Yeah, you're becoming quite a, a skilled avoider of, you know, it, it still is a tax on after someone has died, but you, the point you make is a good one. It, it can go to charity and get around it pretty effectively. But how much money would you raise then, given the, the lack of millionaires or million-dollar properties, is it really worth all the trouble for a government to do this, Sol, if you're not going to raise a real lot of money? Well, Peter, I'd actually in some ways hope it doesn't raise any revenue at all because the handful of people who might otherwise be liable to pay it would instead avoid paying it perfectly legally right. by making donations to Tasmanian charities. And this is why I think, in a sense, it's so amusing to see people who haven't read the report. And, you know, look, I don't expect people from the mainland to read the report. I don't expect many people in Tasmania to read it. It might have been more helpful if the only daily paper in Hobart had 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 read the report. Yeah, yeah. Which they had a week. Yeah, well, they had a, in fact, I sent it to four journalists from the Mercury a week beforehand so they could read it. And the chief of staff or the editor actually assigned the story to a different journalist who is very good at her field but has no background in this. So, you know, I don't blame people for thinking that it's a death tax because that's what the Mercury's headline told them that it was. But it's actually one that is really about the incentive to, to give to charity. Now, if some other government, you know, wants to say, and this applies to what I propose about payroll tax and stamp duty for land tax, because all of these are crafted deliberately to be revenue neutral. If a government wants to use what I'm proposing to raise more revenue because they think we need to spend more on schools and hospitals and police and what have you, then fine, you can do it. And what I'm saying is you can do it in a way that's fairer and more efficient than using Tasmania's existing system. Or alternatively, if a government wants to come along and say, we want to reduce the total burden of taxation because we think that will make Tasmania's economy more competitive, then you can use my report to do that as well. Okay. And if a government wants to raise more money from death duties, then they can use my report to, to have a higher rate. Okay. Or instead of having a dollar for dollar credit, make it 50 cents for every dollar if you want to. Yep. But that's not my point. Yep. You know, my point is to say, and let me put it this way, Australia is one of a handful of countries that doesn't have death duties. You know, we were the first to abolish them. And then New Zealand and Canada and Spain and Portugal and Hong Kong and Singapore followed. And surprisingly, so did Norway and Sweden. But Norway and Sweden have other ways of taxing your wealth while you're alive. They don't need to do it when you die. But countries like the United States in particular have these duties. And in my report, I quote a whole lot of rich Americans who know that they or their estates are going to have to pay it, but they nonetheless think it's a good thing. And... That's because Americans recognize that their estate duty actually is the reason why when you go to the United States, you see so many universities and museums and art galleries and things like that with dead rich people's names on them because the estate duty gives them a powerful incentive to be generous like that rather than just piling all the wealth they've accumulated over their lifetime to their children, whether they deserve it or not. Okay, next one. Your payroll tax. Did, did anyone put the headline out, Saul S. Lake is anti-small business, making all these, these small businesses pay payroll tax uh, when they've got five employees? You must have got some anti-small business slagging, did you? Well, I probably would have got more if the Mercury's headline hadn't been about death tax <laughs> and paid no attention to the report. Look, right. you know, I wrote this fully in anticipation of getting flack from small business. Mm. And my response to that would be a bit like Franklin Delano Roosevelt's in the 1930s, when people were criticizing him for what he was doing about taxes. And he said, I welcome their hatred. Mm. You know, I don't mind having people criticize me. Indeed, you know, if they want to read my report and say it's wrong for these five logical reasons, well then, you know, that's great. I welcome that kind of conversation. But what I go to great lengths to show in this report, Peter, is that although people genuinely believe that small business is the engine room of the economy, you know, it's a bit like, if I can put it this way, the virgin birth or the immaculate conception. People believe it as a religious doctrine, even though there is absolutely no evidence to support it. Gee, and when you you're look going to be in trouble, the, the Catholic Church now, Saul. Everywhere <laughs> you go, you're going to be in trouble. But go on. Indeed. Yeah, and that's fine. As I say, I welcome it. It's fun. But when you look at the evidence, small business mm. 
in aggregate, is not the engine room of the economy. You know, of course, there are individual small businesses, and you and I know them, and everyone who watches this podcast will know some small businesses that are dynamic, that have created employment, that are doing new and innovative things. But if you take small business in aggregate, people will say it provides 44% of the private sector jobs in the economy. Mm -hmm. That's true. But you know what? A decade ago, they provided more than 50% of them. In other words, over the last 12 years, in aggregate, small business has not created a single job. In aggregate, small business has been a job destroyer. And not because they deliberately intend to, but because they're they're in sectors that are not dynamic sectors or they've not been able, or they simply don't want to grow. And this is one of the troubles with schemes that preference small business is that they perversely provide an incentive to, to stay small because if they grow beyond a certain point, You know, in Tasmania, if they have more than 36 employees, they start to pay payroll tax. If at the federal level now they get a turnover of more than 50 million, then they have to pay 30% company income tax rather than 25%. Now, that preference hasn't been in long enough really for us to test what the impact has been, particularly because the detailed tax office figures that would allow you to examine that proposition so far are only out for the year 2017-18. But even if you look nationally at the period since 1 July 2015, when Joe Hockey as treasurer first introduced a lower tax rate for small business and introduced the instant asset write-off for small business, small business has created 3% of the increase in private sector employment since then, whereas 97% of the increase in employment has come from businesses who don't get those preferences. What small business is really good at is avoiding tax. Because if you look at the Australian tax office's tax gap report, and most people don't do that, of course, but the tax office goes to some length to estimate what's the difference between the tax they collect under all the headings of taxes that they have and what they think they would get if there was 100% compliance. And when it comes to personal and company income tax, where for the last year they've published data, which is 2015-16, they're publishing 2017-18 data in October next month. But the latest that's available on their website, you can look at under under tax gap and you'll find it, is about $38 billion of personal and company income tax that in their estimates they didn't collect because of non-compliance. Of that amount, 49.7% was not paid by small businesses. Only 7% was not paid by large corporate groups with turnovers of over 200 million. And the reason they don't pay, theirs is small, is because the tax office is all over them. Mm. Only 3% of what they didn't collect was not collected from rich folks. And the rest was by individuals who are overclaiming on their work-related expenses and things like that. And what's the reward to small business? What's the penalty for small business as a group for avoiding tax more successfully than anybody else in the community is to legally pay tax at five percentage points less than everybody else does. So what I'm saying is, yeah, I'm not saying government shouldn't play a role in any of this. But what I'm saying is instead of preferencing small business just because they're small and perversely giving them an incentive to stay small rather than grow, Why not preference new businesses? Because new businesses, number one, are more likely to be in a sector of the economy that has good growth prospects. You know, most small businesses are in the sectors of the economy they're in because that's what great-grandpa was doing when he started the business. Number two, new businesses are more likely to create jobs because most small businesses already have the employees they want, whereas new businesses need to have a few folks in to do what they want to do. New businesses are more likely to innovate because that's why people start up new businesses is to introduce a new product or a new way of doing something. And finally, because there's no way a new business can prevent itself from becoming an old one, except by going out of business, you don't have the perverse incentives that you do with every incentive to small business, which is to stay just under the threshold at which you cease to be small. 
And I'm saying here in Tasmania, we could really uh, lead the country by saying, implement these three reforms. And then if a business moves from the mainland to Tasmania, number one, they don't have to pay stamp duty on the land they buy to put their premises on. Number two, because as far as Tasmania is concerned, they're a new business. They don't pay payroll tax for five years. And you don't have to do any sneaky under the table deals that all state governments do in competition with each other to get a business to move. It's openly transparent. Well, Saul, a fantastic explanation of why you are anti-small business. We are out of time, um, but if people want to read more, they can go to your fantastic website. Give it to us again. That's bettercallsaul.com.au. <laughs> Thanks, mate. As, as always, great to talk to you. And thank you so much for the opportunity, Peter. Great to be with you. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that, that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by, by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I see how quickly he came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter, or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife Maureen Jordan Mm. that she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought? (laughs) (laughs) Well joining me now on the Peter Switzer Show is Tony Nash, the Chief Executive Officer of Booktopia. Tony, thanks for joining us. Good to be here again. Tony, how has the book business gone, and particularly yours, since the arrival of the coronavirus? Look, Booktopia has been up 80% year on year since the middle of March. So we're now just gone past the middle of September and we're up 80% year on year. Now, um, we're only up 80% and I say that um, uh, with with great uh, trepidation because so many other businesses have suffered mm. and uh, and I, we don't really like to you know, scream and shout about how big, how much more we're doing, but uh, we would have been up probably 125 to 150%. We actually had to cut a lot of our marketing spend on Google and other websites to, to keep it down to 80%. So although um, although we've been going very well, it's been bittersweet because so many others have struggled. So Tony, are you saying that if there was no coronavirus, you would have been up 125%? Or because of the coronavirus, you could have been up 125, but you pulled it back to 80% to actually manage it? That's correct, yeah. Mm. So our our investment in our distribution centre here in Sydney um, has a a capacity of 30,000 units out per day. Uh, Funnily enough, in January, we just kicked off our next round of investment, uh, which will go live in November, which takes us to be able to outbound 60,000 units per day. Now, of course, we never predicted once the board signed off on that last year and when we started to execute that project that the coronavirus was going to come. But had it been already in and we could have kept the taps on full, we would have been up uh, 125 to 150%. But we had to turn our marketing off because we just simply couldn't take that many orders. Uh, The distribution centre was already at capacity and we would have just uh, frustrated too many people. so we had to let a lot of orders go. So where were the orders coming from? Bookshops or people at home who had become more online book buyers? Yeah, uh, 
consumers, people who would have normally gone into a bookshop or found themselves at home and were thinking, what can I do? Or um, how can I re-educate myself? At what, um, books that I've not read in a while, uh, adult coloring books had, have had a yeah. comeback. Um, there's been a um, across a, a, all the all the categories people have been buying. Bookshops also have been buying uh, from us through our distribution business. So we, we uh, Peter, as you know, we're a distributor as well. So bookshops have been buying that business has grown. We've actually taken on a, um, a bunch of new publishers who we're now the Australian and New Zealand distributor for. So that that part of the business has grown. But it, quite frankly, mostly it's been around the consumers and and people at home. And, and being able to buy online. And because mm. Booktopia has been open the whole time, um, we've, we've been able to service that market. How um, good was the fulfillment process that you weren't in charge of? In terms of supply chain getting well, yeah, well, I, I figure, to us? Yeah. No, I, I figure that you, you, know, you, you were responsible for getting the books out off shelves in your organisation, in your storage area, but someone has to take them from some somewhere that's close to you to the customer, like Australia Post or correct. Uh, so, what what was the fulfilment process there like? So, our logistics partner is Australia Post. We yep. don't use anyone else in Australia. Um, we we use um, others for New Zealand, which is a small part of our business. But uh, Australia Post, and they have been, as we've read in the media, all of us have been watching, they have been under the pump. And if anyone's been ordering online, they know that they have been at f- full stretch. They are literally at numbers that they would be doing doing uh, at Christmas, and they've been doing it for six months. They, they must be um, ragged at the moment because uh, it's just everyone has relied on them. Um, as the core delivery partner, and I'm not just talking about Booktopia, I'm talking about not only just pure play online retailers like us, but even uh, omni-channel retailers who are using Australia Post, that everything's going through that network and and they have been phenomenal. They've they've come and gone in terms of sometimes they're lagging behind, their communication's been good to the customer base um, most of the time, and then they've got on top of it again. It's been been a a full-on journey for them to to feel the their network at full scale it's, it's and and of course there's predictions now that we're not going back they're saying that whatever um online retail um percentage of the uh, overall retail we've been shot down the shot down the track to 2027 numbers and we're not going back now people have transformed the, the way they they purchase um purchase product mm. So it's your job, Tony, in case you don't know, to guess the future for your business. And I know you do know that. What happens to all these new online buyers that you've uh, encouraged? Um, will, they, will they stay in there and keep buying online? I think they'll do. But I, my, my prediction is, is that there's going to be less going into department stores and more. I think there's going to be more uh, local community purchasing. I think people are more connected with their community than ever mm-hmm. before. So I think if there's local bookshops in your community, I think people are going to be uh, p- patronizing them more than they perhaps have. Um, so I, I do feel that the, the big department store uh, and, and shopping mall uh, precincts are going to be less, um, less. There's still people going in there, but perhaps less popular than they were, just with more people around. And the, the pandemic hasn't finished. There's most likely going to be a third wave if the experts are right. So therefore, this is going to go on for some time. So the the, the way people operate um, is changing. And so many people, anecdotal stories over the last six months where um, more elderly people who have, would have never bought online are saying, yeah, yeah, um, you know, I'm buying online. Or people are saying to me, my parents are buying online now. Um, and people have made that that made that leap mm. and so therefore online online retail has gone to a whole other level hence um, you know, how the stock market is is uh, viewing those kind of stocks at the moment um, anyone that is an e-commerce um, player mm. now you bought university cooperative bookshop what was the strategy behind this so we didn't actually really buy them mm. um, they went they went into administration and with the Australian Geographic stores and the University Co-op bookshops, they they went into administration. And what we uh, purchased from the administrator was the website 
and and we hired a, bun- a bunch of people that worked in that business, a lot of the store managers. So mm. the strategy behind it was um, we couldn't call ourselves a cooperative. Apparently, uh, we found out very early on that it's illegal to call yourself a cooperative if you're not, mm. and we weren't prepared to go to jail, even though the fine was $2,000. Mm. Um, uh, jail, jail time was not an option. So what we had to do was redirect their co-op website directly to the Booktopia website and said, and to a landing page that says, uh, we know you've come from the co-op, you know, we know that you're looking for the co-op, but um, we are now servicing all co-op orders. Mm. And, and so we've done that. And then the territory managers, or the, the, what, what were their territory managers for us now, but they were um, store managers out at universities or across the country. We've hired um, 12 people across the country who are on the ground Okay, they've been working from home, but they're in the universities. They're visiting schools, libraries, bookshops, um, and other businesses, government departments who are there. Who are their accounts? So we've actually um, we we cherry pick what we felt we could um, take advantage of or or leverage off from what the co-op had, and and textbook uh, our textbook business was already much bigger than the co-op's textbook business. So we're just looking to continue to grow that. Uh, part of our business as well, that university textbook business. When you analyse the kinds of books that were bought over the period, what were the big takeaway messages, Tony? Mm, it went through patterns. So in the beginning, uh, there was definitely a desire for fiction, escapism, uh, kids' books, of course, because kids were at home and they needed to be entertained. Um, then people got bored with their cooking um, and they were everyone got into more cooking books because once you've cooked the same staple, you know, suite of seven or six dishes, whatever it is that you know how to do, you you want to kind of expand your repertoire. So cooking took off really well after about six to eight weeks. Um, a lot of uh, self-help things and to, uh, you know, around the house, um, you know, DIY has gone very well. Uh, all the logical things that you could think of. There's, there's not been anything that's kind of come out of left field from our perspective. Uh, adult coloring books made a comeback. Um, they, they were really out of fashion for a year or two, but um, after that huge fad that was, was there a few years ago, so people were getting back into that. Uh, jigsaw puzzles were very popular, mm. um, which we sell, um, and we couldn't get our hands on enough of them. And I know that from other other retailers as well. Puzzles were very popular. The other, I guess the thing was that what came through actually was that people were kind of get realizing, I had enough screen time. I'm on my phone. I'm on my computer. I, I haven't left the house. I've got no travel time between work and home. So the idea of a book and a physical book, uh, I think the, the, you know, what that, the attributes that a book has really came to the fore over, over the last uh, six months. And, and so that's that's what's been very interesting. It wasn't a lot of, you know, I'm going to download ebooks. Mm. Um, it was very ebooks and audiobooks still stayed on its steady course. Uh, interestingly enough, it didn't have this huge spike. Mm. It is very interesting. Tony, as always, great to talk to you, mate, and good luck for the future. Good on you, Peter. Thanks for your interest. And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll go looking for another interesting person and we'll try and get the inside information on why they're so successful. Quentin time! Quentin time!